0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad. This is episode 59 of Generation Jihad. Um, You'll probably note that uh, Tom isn't leading the discussion here. Uh, Tom is taking a leave of absence. We hope that he'll be back uh, shortly in the future. Uh, But in the meantime, we're going to soldier on. Tom, we, uh, miss you. We love you and, and best of luck. Godspeed and, and come home soon. Today, uh, we have a special episode with, uh, with a good friend of Generation, J- uh, Jihad. It's, uh, Craig Whiteside. Craig is a, an associate professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's co-author of the ISIS Reader, which I highly recommend everyone give a read. It's a fantastic, history and understanding of the islamic state and its predecessor al-qaeda in iraq and the islamic state in iraq uh, he's also a contributor to the combating terrorism centers sentinel which uh which i'm a big fan of as as well uh, as soon as i learned of the death of of the islamic states amir i knew that i had to get craig on the program to discuss this craig has uh, been with us before we did it episode 30 uh it, it was titled uh the I believe it was a, we uh, the the new the ISIS's new caliph was a snitch. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes, and uh, so Craig, say hello.
1: Hi, Bill. Uh, I miss Tom as well. It's uh, it's an honor to be back with you. Uh, definitely a, a not to miss podcast and series. And uh, yeah, that was a memorable episode. Really, really enjoyed doing that with you.
0: Yeah, I, I can't reiterate this. As soon as I learned of his death. Uh, I even think I tweeted something out. I was like, you gotta listen. We got Craig's the guy to go, the go-to guy on this. Um, we just had so much fun recording the, the episode, the previous episodes. And, and again, I just knew I had to ha- have you back on to, to talk about, uh, the death of Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi. Um, how do we want to refer to him he has so many names craig what do we want to call him today it seems like everyone's going with uh, al Qureshi. he goes by so many names uh, haji ibrahim al uh, um, mawali what are we what are we going to settle on today craig
1: um you know i i use his his uh al maula normally but it could be because we spent a lot of time as you were talking about on that episode doing the interrogation reports as part of his real name uh, so, uh, Al Maula or Haji Abdullah is, is probably his most popular, uh, alias, but I mean, he has so many, as many of them do. And you know, this more than most, uh, it's, you know, there's even still conspiracies that he might not be the guy, the U S government is 100%, but they've been, you know, as we've talked about maybe in, in previous, uh, Podcast: uh, The U.S. government's, you know, might have been wrong before on on the identity of Abu Omar and and uh, one of the the, ver- the first leader of the Islamic State of Iraq. So, so, uh, uh, but I'm pretty confident. So yeah, Haji Abdullah or Al
0: Mawla. Let's go with Haji Abdullah. I think that's okay. a, That's probably. One that uh, we can all remember, right? Haji, we're gonna we're gonna refer to Koreshi as Haji Abdullah throughout the rest of the episode. Yeah, because
1: there's probably no more Koreshi than Baghdadi's now, so
0: like we can't, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. And the whole thing with the well, we don't want to get into that, right? Um, yep. uh, uh, yeah. So, okay, so here let's let's get let's get into it. So two days ago, in a daring. Early morning raid, U.S. Special Operations Forces killed Haji Abdul at his hideout in the Syrian town of Atma in Idlib province. Um, we'll get into the importance of the location of, of that raid in a moment. Before we do, let's, let's talk about what happened during that raid. Craig, what do you know about the, how this raid was planned and execute, executed, um, over time and how, how it came to be that we, we found him and, and he was killed during this raid?
1: I think um, a lot of this has been reported. I won't uh, highlight much, except it looks like it's been a longer term. Um, it's been a longer term operation than most people originally thought when it first happened. There were some uh, some ideas that it was related to the prison raid. Maybe the, the intelligence from that uh, led back to, but that, um, at least according to the White House, this has been long rehearsed by uh, the, the special operations force that conducted it. And, um, there's, there's possibilities that it's from some interrogations of pretty high ranking Islamic state leaders that were captured in the last six months. That's typically how the others have been found uh, over time. Um, the only thing I'd, uh, I'd add to some of the reporting is I think the, the government's doing a good job of shaping the narrative for once in the sense that it took a, a very dangerous long range and as as is the the new buzzword and over the horizon kind of capability from from Iraq and and neighboring uh, territories uh, and into hostile territory right uh, near the Turkish border uh, in order to capture the the highest HVT that that we probably have uh, and did it with extraordinary care to to limit civilian casualties. Uh, the civilian casualties that that happened, uh, most, not all, were caused by the ISIL leader Haji uh, Hajiyabdin himself when he uh, when he blew himself up, which is what his two predecessors did as well. So that was anticipated. But innocent civilians living in the same building were were, were carefully and safely evacuated. So, and I see a lot of commentary right now, and this is uh, this is the right way to avoid civilian casualties. But uh, you know, I you know, I think it's admirable. I think it was very high risk, right? If we lose a lot of very specially trained operators from a very finite, you know, group of people to hostile fire when one of these goes bad, it's going to be really easy to say to take this high level of risk, uh, but we would not, we won't do it again. Um, and, and and with that, I'll just end and say that you know, I'm just astounded still by the the capability of our uh, of our special operations forces, our military in general. It was a team effort, to be sure. I think everybody should step back and think about how really how difficult this was. They're making something that's excruciatingly difficult look really easy. And so my hats are are off to the men and women, both in the armed forces, but also the IC that that I'm sure uh, helped put the pieces together to uh, you know to find this guy and to kill him.
0: Yeah, Craig. I echo echo those sentiments. Uh, the the um the skill and the bravery of of those troops and everyone involved in the IC that that was able to plan and execute this attack. Um, our hats are off to you. Congratulations. This is look. I've been. I think the listeners of Generation Jihad and readers of the Long War Journal know that I've been very critical and Tom as well of. The US military, um, but this is really at a leadership level at and, and more of a at a high level. One thing I do know is our troops are very capable of conducting operations like this. We're doing anything if they're given the resources and given the um the the leeway to actually execute these operations and over the long haul counterinsurgency didn't fail because we were bad at fighting or bad at conducting actual counterinsurgency it failed because we didn't have a commitment to doing it and generals were not willing to stand up and and oppose bad policy things of that nature so um there's two parts of this raid that uh really um and not crit- being critical of this raid you know you had mentioned one of them which is the um you know, the to limiting civ- civilian casualties what they actually did at least according to the reporting that I've read um, the New York Times and The Wall Street Journal both have very good pieces there's other um, excellent articles about this raid but they surrounded the building and for 45 minutes tried to get people to leave that building um, this is a highly hostile environment we don't know if uh, if he if the the Islamic States Emir has security forces around him we don't know so they so our forces put themselves at great risk to try to limit civilian casualties and yet civilian casualties still occurred during this operation some because he detonated his suicide bomb but some because you know um some obviously occurred during the operation very likely by us forces uh, i want to be very clear that my position has always been that having zero casualties in any military operation particularly in civilian areas that's a pie in the sky dream you can that number will never be zero it will always have um it just will always be risky and the other interesting thing is the the timing uh or according to reporting at least according to early reporting that the they plan, as you noted craig they planned this over apparently a plan this over months so they had to keep good eyes on him and ensure he wasn't going to escape before they would actually execute this operation and there's a risk involved in that and that risk would be would he escape one article i read Um, I believe it was at the New York times mentioned that his driver was his courier. So we identified him and that's all very interesting. Um, but I'll leave it at that. If you have any further comments, Craig, uh, please let me know.
1: Sure thing. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, I think the, the reporting, you know, you gotta be careful because, some of it you know people are going to all of a sudden start popping up with claims that they were part of you know the intelligence to do that and these are always self-serving and that, you know within another week or two there'll be you know five different theories on on the intelligence that led to this and uh you know we're still trying to figure out you know how you know previous leaders were killed you know how how exactly do how exactly did they find abu Bakr al Baghdadi, his predecessor and you know there's there's different theories on that and uh you know, we'll we'll eventually find out. But I think uh, you know, we should always take a lot of the, the the reporting that's gonna come out in the next week or two with a grain of salt.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Craig. I, I agree. It's the you know, the fog of war, the first reports. You know, again, I want to be very clear. I'm going on what has been reporting. If that's true, it's interesting. We'll ultimately, I believe, we'll find out the the truth. And you know, it is interesting if 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 this reporting is true, how how quickly the White House is willing to release details like this. I always am a little uncomfortable when we see such detailed reporting. It was I was uncomfortable with this with the Bin Laden raid and uh, this raid in particular. It's just. You I know, mean, it's it's nice to know, and I I I f- it feels good to know, or at least think you know. Um, but you know, it gets a little too close to operational uh yeah. re- it, reporting It's, it's
1: right the it's the voyeur and all of us. We wanna we wanna know. Um, you know, there's two interesting, I'd say the two most interesting uh clips that I saw were um, you know, kind of one was a Twitter thread, the other was uh an interview. Uh the interview was Brett McGurk, and you know, he did mention that. Uh, a lot of information was found on the site. So, you know, uh, we, that confirms that there's going to be either follow on raids or the possibility of follow on raids, uh, but also the exploitation of, of this network. And these, these are huge finds. Uh, we saw the same thing after Abu Umar and Abu Hamza were killed in 2010. It led to just a huge cascade of roll ups across. And I think you reported on all of those. Back in 2010, and um, you know, in the Long War Journal, and so uh, you know, the, those that's likely to come. So I thought that was really interesting that he'd come out and say it the day of, like, hey, we found a treasure, treasure trove of stuff. Uh but you know, of course, as long as they probably know that, like they, you know, they, they probably are the first to know that. Uh that said, you know, how quickly they are to change their security procedures uh is probably a battle to them. But you know, that people make mistakes in these kind of situations. The other one was um uh I think it was Bellingcat was uh looking at uh confirming. You know, looking at different uh, open source imagery and, you know, on the ground reporting and pictures and videos that were taken. Uh, that largely confirmed the, the U.S. government's, uh, depiction of what happened that, that Al Maula had set off his, you know, Haji Abdullah had set off, uh, what was probably either, a, you know, an IED in his apartment or, uh, a vest that he had, that he wore on himself, which is, is again what, uh, his two predecessors did and, uh, you know, created a large explosion that actually, uh, and they could they could kind of, you know they they made an argument that was somewhat convincing that it looked like you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a jdam it was it was an, an explosion that happened inside the apartment and the blood spatter and all this other stuff. So those are the two things I thought were most interesting of the of the commentary that, that you mentioned in the articles.
0: Yeah. And Craig, and, and on the JDAM issue, right? If the US was going to drop a JDAM and the, I've, if I recall the New York Times article that talks about um, how they surrounded the house, they went and actually interviewed five families, neighboring families. So this didn't that act part didn't come from intelligence. I, I give it a high yeah. degree of confidence that that's true. Why would you take the risk of surrounding a house for 45 minutes and then you want to exploit the intelligence? You want to capture Correct. Haji Abdullah and then you drop a day, JDAM on it. it doesn't make sense Um, interesting i'll have to check out that bellingcat thread that's a that's very interesting i hadn't seen that so thank you for for pointing me to that i appreciate that right on so um let's talk about where he was killed um which was just miles from where his predecessor abu Bakr al Baghdadi was killed um what's the significance of this location for the islamic state do you know who administers this area and um, what could this tell us about a possible handshake deal between the Islamic State and, and other jihadist groups uh, operating in the area?
1: Yeah, that's that's um, those are some really good questions. I've seen a lot of people on both sides of this argument are is is HTS and, and the Islamic State in, in some kind of, uh, you know, at least some kind of uh, deal with the top leadership. Uh, pretty hard feelings on both sides, you know. Pretty strong feelings on both sides on, on, on the on the possibilities of that. Um, you know, this is this is HTS's area, but the question is how how well are they administering it and securing it? Uh, there's there's lots of reports that these are the that the whole entire area is refugees, so that no one knows each other. There's no one, you know, there's no one moving into the, uh, a neighborhood. Uh, like my neighborhood, where you know exactly who the new person is, and you know you go and find out where are they from, and you know how you know how long are they going to be here. That, that's just not happening in this area. Uh, but I, I'll start with you know, there's nothing impossible in these areas. It reminds me of uh, Abu Ali Al who's a former deputy to the Caliph back in you know 2014 to 16. Very very high visible. Theater throughout the entire movement we've talked about him a lot he admitted in his interrogation that the Iranians had supplied his network his northern AQI network against U.S. and coalition Iraqi forces and I, it's still hard for me to believe I still like sit there and think sometimes like how one it's just the, it's just incredibly bizarre to believe that the Iranians were doing this but it's also hard to understand why he would lie about it in an interrogation and, it, and it, it can almost make sense. So um, Craig, may I interject to really? Yeah, of course. I know I know you have strong feelings on this, but, but please do. Yeah. So I
0: recently testified in a case that's called Cabrera versus Iran. Um, it's the U.S. soldier, it, it, families of U.S. soldiers killed or U.S. soldiers who were wounded um, in Afghanistan or civilians who were kidnapped or wounded or killed and attacked. Um, they're sued Iran for supporting the Taliban. And I've always known that Iran has supplied support for the Taliban. We've seen it in press reporting here and there. But when I went into the case, my thoughts on it were, and i had done some research on it, but never a deep dive. And I did, um, when I started researching this, I really started seeing, and we got intelligence reports declassified, um, you know, went through just reams of information. We tracked Iranian support of the Taliban, all the way to the heart of Kabul, to what they called the Kabul attack network, which was the alliance of Al Qaeda, the Taliban, of course, with the Haqanis, Islamic movement, Uzbekistan, various groups. We the support Iranian support. Now, while I won't say it rivaled Pakistan's support, it was definitely secondary to Pakistan's support. I always would have described it as tertiary before they started that case. And then after I was done testifying in that case and writing the report. I was convinced the Iranians play a very clever game. It's not surprising to me. They support the enemies of their enemies when when it's and then we go back to that secret deal between Iran and Al Qaeda. I didn't mean to make this all about Iran and this, but it's it's a very key point, right? You we sit here and we go, how could Iran support these groups that are diametrically opposed to it? Right. And You're the answer the Iraqis. is
1: Iraqis. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. And the answer is because they. They play they play a, they play a different level of chess. We're yeah, playing a much more strategic game. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Yeah. So so I, I I start that again, like you said, I'll caveat as well as not to not to inject the Iranians into this, but just to say that, like, you know, a lot of times I, I'll read these things and, and it, you know, it, they're really hard to believe. That said, I don't I don't think they're colluding um, for a variety of reasons, you know, um, both, you know, it is it's it's hugely ironic. And it might say a lot about the state of the Islamic State today, um, where they're at in their ability to 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 hide their leaders. Um, but they chose a hostile rivals territory. Um, certainly, it was probably the lesser of all evils. Right. Uh, you, you don't want to be in the regime areas. You don't want to be in the SDF areas. Iraq is usually where the leadership has, has hit out quite successfully, right? I mean, Abu Omar and Abu Hamza last from 2006 to 2010 in the middle, in the center of Iraq. Um, So I'm not sure if it's the, you know, the, the role the PMFs who are not playing a productive role, but certainly have a lot more freedom of maneuver than they did in 2010 across Sunni areas of Iraq. I don't know if that's making it untenable, but the leadership has decided not to be in Iraq, which I thought would be safer. And they're sitting close to the Turkish border could allow a quick, easy escape to uh, a place that would be untouchable to us, um, deter, um, you know, incursions, we have to be very careful about even going near that border because of the Turkish influence in that area. Um, but I think, you know, do I think they have a deal with HTS? You know, stranger things have happened, but I, I think no, right? I think Julani, if he had a chance to take out the ISIL leadership after what they did to him in 2013, tried to pull the rug out from him, ran a second track, frustrated uh, his efforts to, to kind of take ownership and control of the, the Syrian jihad against the, the regime, crippled him for for quite some time, uh and, and maybe even forced him to do the kind of uh really radical political, you know, adventurism that he's doing now. They're each other's mortal threat in the in a way that the US isn't to this particular group or or Syria or Iraq. And uh, only one of them is going to get to lead the Salafi political milieu. And so you know it's even even though these groups do collaborate and cooperate when it's beneficial to both, and I think they all do it to some degree, regardless of sectarian or even sometimes ideology, uh, at the end of the day, they're too similar to allow each other at this point to, to, to coexist. So there's, you know, one of them is going to be. The the leader of the movement at the end, and the other is not going to exist. And so, you know, I think in this case, it was one of those areas that that, that area is probably just not administered and secured like we think it, it is.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent analysis, Greg. I I I tend to agree with that. I wouldn't like you said, I wouldn't be shocked if there was some type of not in a wink uh you know look the other way deal maybe it came from lower level sympathize some but at the end of the day i don't think this comes from a strategic agreement between Hayat tahir al-sham and 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 the islamic state uh so Craig, let's talk about the succession for a little bit. Do we do you have any ideas who may I realize this is a difficult question? I've thought about this and uh I've I've only you were the only person I could think that could provide it. Who do we think that will that can replace Haji Abdullah at this point in time?
1: You know, I don't know. Um Haji Abdullah was actually the the strong horse uh to take Abu Bakr's. It, it was pretty well. He was one of a, of a few candidates, but it was, uh, I think he was the front runner and had been groomed for some time, especially during when the caliphate was was strong and conventional and secure territory. And he was, you know, high level, you know, and but that's an after effect of some of the major leaders being killed by, by the United States and his coalition partners like Abu al-Ambari or Abu Muslim al-Turkmani. Uh, some of the really high-profile leaders who were leading the Islamic State back in, you know, 2006 before it was the Islamic State. Right? I mean, they were leading Al Qaeda in Iraq for the most part as the as the as the highest-ranking Iraqis in the group. So, um, you know, all those guys are gone and left the vacuum for for uh, Haji Abila, But uh, it's it's not clear um, who that is. I I know they have a succession plan. Uh, I don't know that, but I, I'm very confident that they have a succession plan. It's something we can find in their writing and their doctrine. So, for example, from in the ISIS reader, we have the Fallujah Memorandum of 2009. It says, look, we have to have foolproof, already in already set in place, leadership succession plans, because it, without it, we'll fail. Without it, this movement will break apart. And we've worked way too hard to, to, to kind of gel the Salafi movement, Salafi jihadists, even just you know, Sunni Iraqis in general and recruited them into the fold. And we're not going to blow that by not having uh, a pre-established plan. I don't, I don't think it's locked in. I'm sure the um, yeah. So, so they, they, they have, they usually have a plan, uh, but right now, I mean, the the easiest way or the best way I could put it is their bench is very thin.
0: Yes. So as you mentioned, the, the first generation leaders, the the old heads are gone. The hardest thing I think to identify, do in, in this job, or one of the hardest things, is to identify that next generation of leadership. I'm sure they're out there, but they're not very visible to us, and we don't know how effective they are. And that's that's just the reality. I agree with you. I I, I thought about this for a little bit yesterday, a little bit this morning, racked my brain and said, well, I don't think I could identify who that person is. Um, it's, it's, it'll be interesting. I suspect, as you said, the Islamic State has done, gone through this analysis. They have to, as you mentioned. Um, I'm going to take a moment here to, to pause. This is Generation Jihad. I'm your host, Bill Raggio, and we're speaking to Craig Whiteside. Um, we're discussing the death of the emir of the Islamic State. That's Haji Abdullah. So Craig, uh, you mentioned the success and process. What does this look like? How long does the Islamic State take to appoint a new leader how do they meet the how how do they pick that next leader tell us tell us what you know from your research
1: i mean they've they've a very well established pattern largely um, you know from from practice from doing it they've, they've had plenty of practice as as we as we understand you're know, very capable counterterrorism uh pressure they've been under by the united states so, um, you know, I'm pretty. These are all. I don't know these for a fact, but I'm pretty sure. You know, Hadia Billah has some guidance, either written or verbal, for the probably written to make sure no one, you know, hijacks any of it. But uh, guidance for the delegated committee, which is probably dispersed. That's the the the, the committee of senior leaders who runs day to day operations. Uh, but also to the Consultative Council, right, the Shura Council, the senior leaders from across the organization, regardless of, of where they are, uh, you know, in the leadership, uh, but people who, and la- largely religious, who will vote on, on the on the best candidate, uh, according to their doctrine, and this is written doctrine, this goes back to 2006 and informing the people about the Islamic State before it was established, The the person to be to lead the movement had to have religious credentials, and something that like the founder Abu Musab al-Zarqawi didn't have. Right? He didn't. He tried his best to to sound religious, but it never had any actual formal instruction whatsoever. So they have to have religious credentials and have experience as an imam, as well as knowledge of jurisprudence, experience in the organization as a judge and Sharia, an advisor to leaders. So the governor they would be a wali's. Uh, advisor on religious matters and the and the and the you know proclamations that the uh, that the governor would do, uh, they have to have a Quraysh ties. So Maula had both the Hashimi and Quraysh ties, as you mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the broadcast, as part of his name. And all of them have Abu Umar al Baghdadi, the first leader, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, uh, and then al Maula. All had you know a well-researched, pre-researched. Tie to Muhammad's tribe, and um, and even in some cases, like in, in Maulis' case, uh, the sub-tribe that, that Muhammad actually belonged to, the Hashmi. So, um, assuming that, um, assuming that we're correct that this is the leader of the Islamic State, and like I said, the U.S. government is, you know, absolutely 100 certain. Um, but, you know, we've had some confusions and, you know, they, they, they've they tried to put us on the, off the scent uh, in the past. But um, if if he is, we'll very quickly see a martyrdom uh, announcement. They won't hide it. Uh, they will announce a new Amir at you know, within the next two weeks, to be sure. Again, assuming that he's the correct guy. And then uh, the tricky part is in, in something that they... They did practice last time when Abu Bakr was killed two years ago, but hadn't really had to worry about it before. And that's getting that will wilayah to the, the provinces to pledge to the new leader. Um, Abu Bakr did something. I think the most important thing Abu Bakr did in his entire tenure was not announced to caliphate in 2014, which I think was almost like, you know, like it was pretty obvious what was happening, right? It was very symbolic, right? But uh, what Abu Bakr did near the end of his tenure was to make sure that people all of the provinces from West Africa all the way to, to East Asia uh, re their allegiance to him after the caliphate had, uh, had failed. And that was a, a reminder that he was still the legitimate leader, even though they didn't control territory, which is a very important point. And, and it could have gone it could have gone another way. People might've been like, Oh, you guys lost territory. That's it. You know, we're going, we're now we're free to go on our own. Now there's reasons they wouldn't do that. I won't really get into him here, but um, you know, he set the next count, cal- and then he gets killed, <laughs> you know, then he gets killed and he is just magically either had the intuition or it's part of this idea of leadership succession that they said, look, we, we got to make sure that things are set up in case something bad happens. And then he gets killed. And the next guy you know what do we see 100% of the provinces all pledged to uh Haji Abdullah as the new leader as the new caliph even and so um, this is these are the things to watch for in the, in the next in the coming weeks
0: yeah that's that's a great point you know his ability to keep the islamic state together after the loss of their physical caliphate in iraq and syria that was uh, that was a feat it's i think it's widely misunderstood <clears throat> we, um, this is why, look, you know, Tom and I, and I'm sure you agree, there's an ebb and flow to the jihad. And right now, the Islamic State is in an ebb, right? They, they've lost the territory in, in Iraq and Syria, but there's a flow in certain theaters, and particularly in West Africa and Sub Saharan Africa and Central Africa, where the Islamic State has su- some success. <clears throat> if the, I think if the Islamic State isn't able to name a new caliph and get the, get the, uh, pledges of allegiance, uh, the, the buy from the provinces, then, you know, we can look at this and say, this was a, this strike, this raid to kill Haji Abdullah was a major success. So yeah, let's, let's get into that a little bit. Um. What do, what does the loss of Hajib Abdullah mean for the Islamic State? Do you look at this as a strategic f- defeat or just a tactical blow that the Islamic State has to weather and uh, something it, it will have to will have to deal with the pro- problems of succession and getting the um, uh, the provinces swearing allegiance to it?
1: Yeah, I think it can be confusing, but this is the type of stuff we teach military officers in their professional military education, like I do at. Uh, for the Naval War College here at the, at the Naval Postgraduate School, but um, all leader, our leadership decapitation is a tactic, right? It is, it is, a, it is clearly a tactic. But tactics can have strategic effects, and that's what gets confusing. So if this breaks up the caliphate, as you're saying, if the if if the if the provinces are like. Like, we just did two years under a guy we never heard of or saw his face and aren't really even sure who he is other than Abu Ibrahim, you know, Al Hashimi Al Qureshi. Uh, according to you're telling us this and we, we trust you, but we just did two years under this guy and never heard his name. And now you're going to give us another guy like that. That is. And it's funny because I started thinking like, let me rank the leadership succession crises that this group has had. Like Zerkawi dies. And that's actually a good thing for the organization moving forward because they needed to be more Iraqi. The group is 95% Iraqi. And the other the Iraqi rivals were like, come on, we can't have this guy leading us forever. He's you know, he's a rock star, but he's also, you know, a little unstable. Uh, Abu Omar and Abu Hamza are running it together. And when they get killed, the the intel trove and this this the cascading effect from that almost takes, the organization down, like I said, as you've written about. Um, so there's this and, and Abu Bakr, who's a nobody, shows up and he's quiet for two years, and you know, just like this pattern. Um, and he survives that, but it also you know corresponds, he's kind of helped with kind of the upswing, the geopolitical events that are going on, Syria, foreign fighter flows, a lot of different things are helping him kind of claw back into it and then become like this, you know, guy who's anointed the first caliph. Um, so you know, that was pretty difficult, too. But I think this is their worst one, I think, because I was saying that, you know, the, now that they've gone global, their inability to keep somebody alive long enough to kind of lead the resurgence that they're going to need to do to to, to kind of hold this together is is I'm not saying they won't come out of this. OK, I'm not saying that um, some of the advantages that they've had as a global caliphate, um, at least according, you know, in relation to their rival, you know, won't won't still you know, hold strong for them. But, you know, if we saw some defections, I would not be surprised. Or people making claims to be the next leader from a different, you know, outlying province like West Africa, which is, you know, um, pretty, it doesn't have as many, much activity going on, but they might be more successful in controlling territory than than the core in Iraqi Syria. So.
0: Yeah, the succession, I think that's the key here. We'll, we watch how that goes and we watch how the provinces deal with it. Um, the one thing I think is misunderstood here is that just because it let's just say, let's let's say that his death and a failure to properly handle succession leads a breakup to the Islamic State. It these guy these groups, these provinces will go elsewhere. Does it mean they rejoin Al Qaeda? Do they just create local branches? So the jihadism won't go away. It'll just be absorbed or repurposed to other tasks. But one of the things, but the breakup of the Islamic State. Itself, I would say it would be a, still be a strategic defeat because of the organization of its media, particularly its media operations, which I think are just its most effective um, part of one of the most effective part of the organization. Um, Yeah. So that's, it's excellent analysis. Thank you for that, Craig. Uh, Did you have any other comments on that or?
1: No, no. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the commentary tends to be, and this is, this is typical of the of the leadership decapitation kind of genre and the writing that's gone into it is, is you know, kind of narrows into this tactic. And then they're like, but, you know, they always replace the leader. So therefore, this doesn't work like, well, you know, it, it's hard to measure how much harder it is for the calf to hold this stuff together. And, you know, this leader, they overcome leadership decapitation until they don't. Right. Until they don't.
0: That's a, I'm going to – I had a conversation with a friend the other day, and we were using the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan as an example of this. I think one of the biggest blows to the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan is when the U.S. killed mullah Masood. I think that was in 2013. Um, this is when the U.S. drone campaign was also targeting top al-Qaeda leaders in Pakistan. Um, and I'll note that that did not cause the – it hurt the group without a doubt, but it did not cause the collapse – um, we were killing them pretty quickly, but we weren't killing them quickly enough. But with the movement in Taliban and Pakistan, the removal of Hakimullah um, they replaced him with Mullah Fazul, who was the wrong clan. He was a divisive leader. He looked crazy. I mean, this is a guy who had a his nickname was Mullah Radio, and who's Big thing was anti-polio campaigns and then Taliban leaders, children start dying of polio because they said it with polio vaccines was a Western plot. The TTP breaks up. It it, it splinters. No, but it, the group was still had deadly elements, but it wasn't as organized. The, and then here's the example of a decapitation strike. That was a failure. We killed him. I think in 18 or 19, I I don't remember, the years are just getting past me, Craig. Um, We should have left him. He was divisive. The TTP was disorganized. Its violence was low. He's been replaced um, with an effective leader who's reorganized the group. He was from the right clan. He's well-respected, religious leader, had all the right credentials. And the TTP, the movement of the Taliban and Pakistan's insurgencies, has reorganized. So sometimes... I think it's just to, to me though that's the perfect instance. Like Haki Muller, um, his predecessor Beitullah Massoud, was very effective. Haki Muller was just as effective. His successor was ineffective. It led to the breakup of the group, but the group was able to stick over. Those elements were able to stick around long enough. They also had the advantage of the Afghan Taliban and Al Qaeda and other groups in there, sort of. Kind of keeping it all together, even when it was apart. But I, I do, I just always find those, this conversation of decapitation strikes. Is it a tactic? I, our leadership view, I, when I'm talking about our political leadership and Republican and Democrat have viewed it as a strict strategy when it all, at all times it has been a tactic. And, uh, it's refreshing to hear you say that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it could be because, you know, the special mission units that are strategic assets. So then, you know, just be- because you use a strategic asset in a tactical manner doesn't make it a st- strategic you know, impact, but it can have strategic impact. You're just yes. not sure. And I think you have a great point that my partner, Herora Ingram, and I've brought up a couple of times is like, when do you refrain from doing leader decapitation? Because, you know, that leader is tearing that organization apart or he's bringing it down or he doesn't. He has the wrong vision. They picked the wrong guy. Just like you're saying, I think the Islamic State's done that in the past. We've done them a favor by, you know, but the problem is, you know, from a theoretical perspective, that makes total sense. But, you know, operators and policymakers, once they find out where X leader is they you know, and they're important enough to, to, to uh, accept the risk involved in that operation, they're going to do it. I mean, they're just going to do it. And uh, the problem is if you get a better leader, um, that's able to to reorganize or, or you know invigorize the you know the the movement and then and that's very difficult to to know right shaping the bench is what it's called but you don't you know do you have the fidelity of information to to make those kind of decisions and no politician is going to take the risk that find, people find out that they knew. Osama bin Laden was in X cave and didn't do anything about it. I mean, look at, look at what happened to George W. Bush, you know, with uh, the Tora Bora stuff. Like he, you know, we still hear about that.
0: Yeah. I think that is, uh, I wish I could have run that operation. I wish I had, I, I just, nothing would have walked out, Craig. And that would, have, I, I think we would have had a very, very different war.
1: You needed the Moab back in 2002, yeah. you know,
0: <laughs> I literally would have surrounded the area. Issued an ultimatum: walk out, or nothing. Walks out, and then daisy chain pattern of saturation, and shrug my shoulders. I mean, we just we've never had that. Well, that's a whole whole different discussion for a whole nother day. But we we failed to have that commitment. Um, war is ugly, and it, and it it should be ugly. But it also should be brief, and you should defeat your enemies. And we we let our enemies stay in the game and al qaeda was able to reconstitute reorganize and and then from it spawns the islamic state and now we and now it has a footprint throughout the globe when it was pretty limited um pre 9/11 so. so well i think this is a good place to wrap it up craig um tell us what you're working on uh, any any interesting projects what do you got coming up in the future
1: cool yeah um i'm still doing some work on the leadership succession you know trying to understand the theory behind, you know, um, you know, what gives a leader legitimacy in these militant groups, you know, the Zawar, like you mentioned, and um, you mentioned this before we came on, you we were talking about Zawahiri and, you know, how do we know, what is it that, you know, how, what's his relationship to his followers, uh, char- char- charismatic versus kind of these legitimate or uh, these legal rational kind of um i think that's something the islamic state's done well so i'm working on that with Haruro, and then uh with another partner i'm looking back at an old meeting uh back in the the good old days of 2006 i think when you were stomping around fallujah uh there's there's a big meeting of the majidine shura council we have records of this meeting but not what was discussed And, and we're trying to understand what was discussed we think This meeting of the Mujahideen Shura Council back in 2006 is planning the long-term future of the Islamic State. Um, And all of them go on to lead the Islamic State later on in 2013 to 16. So there's just this this coincidence uh, that's hard to to understand how, you know, in the randomness of, you know, counterterrorism pressures and taking people off the battlefield, like how is it that the same group of guys who are you know, planning the future of the Islamic State or running it in 2013 to 16. It must have seemed fantastical to them, but we're trying to understand, like, what what are they doing in this one meeting? So it, it's kind of unusual to have this level of fidelity of, of a group of guys meeting together, knowing who they were, guessing what they were talking about, i.e., what do we do with this Zarqawi guy who's, who's been a boon to us, but, like, he's he's, he's going to get found here soon. What do we do? And that, that kind of leads us to where we are today. Yep.
0: If we only had a JDAM for that meeting, right? <laughs> um, Craig, that's extremely fascinating. And let's keep in touch. When you publish on these, both issues, we'll have you on. Also, I'd like to get – once the Islamic State announces uh, its new leader, uh, I'd love to get you back on. I mean that's probably in a week or two. But if you're willing, come back on. Let's discuss it. Let's see what we know about the new leader and, and see how this has resonated throughout the Islamic State. Sound like a deal?
1: That sounds great. And I'll tell you one thing I, I forgot to mention. And I would love to, this is a total wild hunt, but the group is known for being very Iraqi. Be very interesting to see if if now that they've gone global and had two Iraqi leaders as global leaders, do they find uh someone who's certainly going to be from the region because they have to be, they have to have that those ties that I talked about, the Quraysh tie, but uh, be interesting to see if it's a Saudi or a Jordanian or an Egyptian that has these particular ties. Not not too hard to have this particular tie, uh, as long as it's well documented. So that's something to look forward to. But you know, we'll, we'll see. That be that's what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic, fascinating. Let's let's see how this shakes out, Craig. I really appreciate you coming on in such short notice, um, and appreciate the the fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. A uh, big fan of the podcast. Never missed it. Uh, definitely have always enjoyed your work, you know, all the way back and uh, definitely missed on so, to give him, give him my best. I heard he's got a book coming out soon. I'm really excited for it.
0: Yes, we, we are as well. I'll, I'll certainly let him know. I'm sure he's listening. Thank you, Craig, for everything. Um, you are too kind, sir. You have a great day. Thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode, episode 59 of generation jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon.